We all misbehave sometimes. Want to change the world, indulge in some bad behavior. Hello and welcome to Bad Behavior. I'm Rosalind. And I'm Nicola. And Nicola, I'd love to ask you how you've been bad recently. My being bad this week is about my period, actually. I recently finished a wonderful uh, book called About Bloody Time, which is written by the guests that we'll be talking today, Karen Pickering and Jane Bennett. And this really, this book completely gave me so many reflections about the relationship that I had with my period and just, you know, its place in my life. You know, it shows up every month and I'm like, hey, hey girl, how you doing? And I get a bit angry because to be honest with you, she is a super painful guest to have. Like I get really, really intense period pain. It kind of is, it it completely takes me out for a good like week and a half I would say I'm also I was gonna say a little bit but I'm quite iron deficient as well so generally it has me being like I feel like I'm a a very pale white like Victorian woman in a in a painting like I could faint at the drop of a hat you know when I'm on my period that's my vibe you know thinking about my how many I wonder I've never actually calculated how many years I've been menstruating for I got my period at 14 can you do the math quickly (laughs) oh god (laughs) sorry I shouldn't have brought math into it this is such a simple problem but my brain is not it fully (laughs) I don't know why this is so funny to me it's so simple because it's 11 years it's 11 okay wait let me let me double check it just just Listeners, bear with us. <laughs> 14, 15, <laughs> 16, we do 17, simple 18, 19, 20. Yeah, it's 11. 19, 20, 24. Yeah, 11 yeah. Oh, well done. Good on you. Thank you. Um, this is, see, that's a bad tactic of life to rely on other people to do your math. But that's what I did to you. And I'm so sorry that I put you on the spot like that. It was really on the spot, but I feel like I rose to the occasion. I did that equation. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, And then I fully sat here and counted on my hands to make sure we were correct. Um, We are talented in other areas. Yeah, Thank you yeah, very you're much. right. Anyways, back to my period. <laughs> oh, that's math is a whole nother shame center for me. We're talking about the shame of menstruation. I just want to quickly inquire with you. Is it menstruation or menstruation? I don't know that there is a correct way because I say menstruation, but I'm also very Australian in the sense that I haven't lived anywhere else. And I think perhaps you might have heard it a different way in New York. I'm going to go for menstruation. Also, I just want to let everyone know that a working title for this episode. Oh, no, please don't. Please don't let them know about the working title. It's so bad. (laughs) No, it's really good. Because it doesn't make sense, Nikki. Okay, fine. I'll just say the first bit of it, which is I wanted to call this menstruation nation. No, say all of it, because otherwise me being against (laughs) it doesn't make any sense. Okay, I don't want people to think I'm, you know, tyrannical. (laughs) (laughs) you're an absolute horrible person to work with no it was it was gonna be menstruation nation how 51 percent of the population has lost their blood rights which what are blood rights how do we lose it is this true look that's why i said it was a working title okay you know i don't think it was working that's the point (laughs) Okay, cool. And that's why this episode will not be called (laughs) Menstruation Nation. I mean, that part of it's not bad. Okay, okay. Well, then maybe let's revisit (laughs) the first. (laughs) Back to your 11 years of menstruating. Well, you've had your period 132 times. (gasps) If you have 12 a year and you've had it for 11 years, that's 132 times. Wow. That is insane. For a lot of that time, like I haven't really, like I've not actively thought about its role in my life. Like it's just, she's turned up and I'm like being really annoyed that she completely, can I call her a she? (laughs) I think you can. 
It's your I've period. I've dissonified her. <laughs> okay, I'll call her a she then. <gasps> oh my gosh. Can I tell you something? I've, I went back into maths, okay? I, so if you had it 132 times, that's 132 weeks of being on your period, which is 2.5 calendar years. Oh my goodness. Wow. That is crazy. That really brings back that like Victorian picture I had in my head. I'm just imagining this like <laughs> you fanning pale... yourself under the hot sun. Yeah. Yeah. This like pale, sickly woman just like very Elizabeth two... Swan in um, yes that film. What's that? Twilight. Film? What? Bella... Are you talking about Twilight? No. I'm. Oh, Pirates of the Caribbean. You, Elizabeth. Bella Swan is Twilight. I said Elizabeth Swan. Okay, well, that's beside the point. I mean, <laughs> you could go into a whole... There's a whole nother conversation about, like... Victorian the women. Blo- and the blood metaphors that are present <laughs> within the Twilight Sucker. But Oh, anyway. wow, I didn't even think of that. What a missed opportunity. This is all to say that we wanted to learn more about this. We wanted to learn more about the taboo around periods and we decided to talk to the wonderful Karen Pickering. I am Karen Pickering. I am an organiser and writer and activist around women's rights and feminist ways of organising the world. And so the big project that I just worked on with Jane Bennett, my co-author, is a book called About Bloody Time, The Menstrual Revolution We Have to Have, which was made possible by the Victorian Women's Trust, not only backing the project, but conducting the original research so that Jane and I had archive of data that was surveys around the experience of menstruation and menopause of nearly 3,000 women and girls. So it was an absolutely immense archive and of primary data. You know, they commissioned it because they wanted to know about people's experience of menstruation and menopause in order to inform the work of the trust and things like lobbying government and, you know, where funds should go. But then they just realised they were just sitting on this gold mine and that it should also be a book. So Jane Bennett and I spent a few years making that into a book that argues for a new way of approaching menstruation and menopause by explaining how the menstrual taboo operate and what we can do to dismantle it. I'm so lucky to have that book in my life. I was wondering in all the data that you sifted through and uncovered, what was most shocking to you? Well, I suppose we expected to find negative attitudes towards menstruation and menopause. But what was really shocking was just the extent of that negativity, how deeply it was felt, how it was the same across so many age groups, how women and girls were recollecting their first period or their menarche across different age groups, so therefore across decades and decades, they had exactly the same experience. So that was shocking to me that women had in the 1950s and 1960s experienced a strong taboo around their period and that girls in the 2000s we're experiencing the exact same thing. And I just thought, this is, this has to change because I just thought about every single woman and girl. And obviously our sample was English speaking women and girls. It was, I think in the end, we had over 40 different countries represented. So it was a great kind of snapshot, but it was still a, a self-selecting sample. And so if you actually consider how the menstrual taboo operates across all cultures, in all countries, at all times, it just became just so immense to me just thinking about if each individual woman or girl is anxious, is held back, is feeling reproachful towards her body, is feeling ashamed, what does that add up to, you know, in a huge social and cultural sense? what does that equal? And so, yeah, that was pretty shocking. 
it was also shocking how many women and girls felt as though they couldn't even talk about their period with their friends or their family or their mum or their dad. Yeah, that made me really sad. There were a few individual stories that people told about how much their relationship with their dad changed after they got their period or how they went through menopause and didn't even explain it to their partner. This is getting in the way of human connection. I mean, as much as all the other arguments that we make about gender equality and women's rights and, you know, these big grand political arguments, but also just one-on-one, it's like people's ability to connect. Yeah, there's so many reasons to fight the menstrual taboo. And I think reading the book, you really get a sense of how every girl and every woman experiences it. And that means that everyone experiences it. You know, that means that every person in the world is affected by it. So, you know, we felt very privileged to be, be taken into the confidence of the survey respondents. But yeah, a lot of their stories were terribly sad. So that was really interesting to hear Karen talk about learning about our periods and and the shame and the taboo in the context of connection. I think that's a concept that I haven't really considered when I think about my period and how it it is kind of isolating a lot of the time. Well, I can count on one hand the amount of people I would be comfortable talking about my period to. You, luckily. (laughs) Uh, And therefore the world. Um, Yeah, a few friends. I probably wouldn't talk to my my male relatives my close family perhaps in certain circumstances I don't know it's just it's just not something I I even with friends I think I occasionally feel I have to talk myself up to bringing it up and when I do I use those stupid you know the the kind of oh what's the word the colloquial way of saying it I never say oh I'm on my period let's talk about it I say you know I'm currently riding the red wave or <laughs> you know I'm having my lady time or you know I think those terms are around because it helps with the shame, right? If you're able to to call it a crimson wave or like Mother Earth's gift. Or I remember one of my friends said that his mum used to call it her guest. You know, if you're able to put like a nicer name attached to it, it kind of, maybe that helps people talk about it. I mean, does it? I think it kind of cloaks it a little. It makes it seem like I can't just name it for what it is. I can't just say, hey, I'm having some really crazy period pain or whatever it is without first easing my way into the hot water. I think it is a symptom of the stigma around it. And I think it's funny because I very much feel like most of the time I'm completely unashamed about it and I don't have a lot of things tied up in it and then I think about how I communicate about it and I realize that I must. It's actually me trying to figure out how to just start a conversation. It's not not knowing that I can't talk to someone, it's like how do I talk to you? It's such a basic thing. Well and I mean that's the connection piece isn't it? If you don't feel like you ever have that space then That's why a lot of people just don't talk about periods, you know? It still has an intense stigma of, like, shameful and, like, dirty attached to it. I still feel ashamed when I go to the supermarket and I buy... I See, I call them lady things. I'm learning so much about myself. I used to say to my dad, you know, when he had to go and pick things up, I'd say, can you get me some lady things? And he knew what that meant but we would never say, I need sanitary towels and tampons or whatever it was. I remember I used to always want to um, buy it from a server who was female. Nowadays, I don't do that, but there's always a little part of me that's like, what are you thinking? It feels like personal information that you're giving people because it's like, here you go, guys. I'm buying pads and some Panadol and evening primrose and I've got my period. You know, it's like this declaration you have to make, even if you don't know that person. It's kind of bizarre. Well, I think in that same vein, though, it's it's also that's 
stuff that people need to know as well to know what kind of energy you're bringing into that day or like where your head's at. I think one thing that's kind of changed this experience a bit for me is working in a all-female workplace. I've never felt comfortable before that. Even with groups of female friends, I've never felt comfortable disclosing that I had my period. But when it's you know, now in the workplace that I am in, it's like the playing field is kind of equalized and, you know, it's part of the culture to talk about it or to like acknowledge if you have um, pain because of your period. And that's been quite transformative for me because it stopped feeling like an excuse and started feeling like something that I can acknowledge does impact my life really intensely like if I have pain and I can't you know think straight or get my work done like it's nice to know that I'm in an office where I wouldn't be like forced to but yeah I don't think I would have ever gotten that little epiphany if it wasn't for an all-female workplace. I think we've talked about that before you know just how powerful it can be to have a label and to have something you can own up to because it means you can manage it better there's less I need a I need to do so well so no one will tell and no one will see that I'm struggling and more let's work around it let's work with others I can own up to the difficulty and get it done if you use Karen's point of connection as like an entry point to open the conversation with people who may not be comfortable talking about it, I think that could be really interesting as well. When you put it in terms of connection, if you do not talk about periods or interrogate why you think they're so gross and disgusting, then like you're part of like the connection block. I think also it's hard to go, hey, let's talk about shame. Let's talk about what you're ashamed of. And it's a lot easier to go, how do you talk about this? Who do you talk to? You know, it's sort of a roundabout way of going into it. And it's an easier way to quantify it as well. In terms of your journey to create this book, what was your relationship to the topic? Only as a lay person (laughs) and as a menstruator. I was brought in because I am a a writer and a good communicator. And so I was brought in as a kind of gun for hire to be this person who has a quite engaging voice and is able to take complicated or dry academic material and make it more exciting or more interesting for a popular audience. Like that's my skill set. I was paired with Jane Bennett, who is a menstrual educator and very powerful witch. of many decades standing in the menstrual education community. And so I went into it thinking, oh, yeah, you know, I've got like a really positive attitude about periods and, you know, like this will be great because I don't have any problems with menstruation and I find it really fascinating and I naively thought this will be really fun. <laughs> you know, this will be this will be a really great kind of empowering, positive journey and then <laughs> – And then, you know, we dived into the data and I was like, this is depressing. My journey, as you put it, which is, you know, kind of an overused word, but in this case is really perfect because I really went on this, you know, trek through what I thought the book was going to be about, then finding that it was actually so confronting and so scary and then reflecting on my own menstruation and my own life and kind of connecting up a bunch of dots that I hadn't really understood before and then realizing that actually I knew so little about my own body that my understanding like so many people's was just that very biology textbook plumbing explanation and that that my decisions around contraception and my decisions around sex and my decisions around conception and family planning had all been kind of made in this haze of not knowing shit about my body. And so that was really personal. That's how it became very personal to me. And then I kind of like had to expand that personal lens back out to the political and to the world and go, what does this actually mean if I'm this like fierce, powerful feminist who only because she works on a book about it discovers that she's 
in the grip of the menstrual taboo. So I was like, you know, for a start, how can we use the book to make sure that everyone who reads it gets the end and is on different terms with their body and is kind of on their own path towards, you know, a more full understanding of what the hell is going on in their reproductive system. But also how can we actually change society? The book has to do more than just change individuals. It has to actually have this long tail effect. Yeah, so that's kind of how it affected me. But also the other thing was that I signed the contract to write the book and then very soon after that became pregnant. Yeah, it was a very surreal experience to be learning about my body while my body was doing the thing. That was bizarre. It was like, because my pregnancy was not planned. And so it was just, I was like, yeah, I'll write a book about menstruation. It'll be great. And then all of a sudden I was pregnant. My body was like completely at the behest of my reproductive system. You know, my reproductive system was, was in charge of my whole body for the first time in my life. And I was like, wow, okay, I've spent 20 years just taking the pill so that I kind of like suppressed my menstruation and my reproductive system to kind of keep it in its place. And then all of a sudden it was like had taken over my life. So it was, yeah, it was a good time to be spending a lot of time with witches. That's <laughs> that's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think we can do to better prepare people to have their periods? Well, I would say for a start, we would talk to kids about menstruation, girls, boys, non-binary kids, all kids about menstruation from as early as possible. I think given that, you know, the average age of menarche is between 10 and 15, you want them to understand that way before 10, you know, and if you start talking to them about it when they're five, it's just a normal part of life for them. And so I think that that is, as with so many big social problems that we have, the answer is like education and generational change so that new generations coming through have got a totally different way of looking at whatever it is you want to change. So, you know, for instance, like when I was a kid, I never, well, I'm 42, so I never wore sunscreen. And I just like sunbaking in the sun with like oil on me to get like as burnt and brown as possible, right? That's the 80s and 90s. That's not that long ago, you know, that's 20 years ago. And now we know that's nuts, you know, you definitely should not ever do that. So like my kid doesn't leave the house without sunscreen on and he just knows that that is the super annoying thing that has to happen before you leave the house. But it's just he knows no different. Sunscreen comes back to me all the time as like a good kind of case study because when he was one and two and I was putting the sunscreen on him, I wasn't like, oh, God, he's too young to understand what sunscreen means. You know what I mean? I was just like, the reason why we put it on is because we protect our skin and our skin's really precious and we've got to look after it. Now, he's going to develop more and more sophisticated understanding of that as he gets older, but he's already acculturated to it. So it's the same with like he lives in a house with his mom who uses a menstrual cup. If you've ever been around toddlers, like you can't go to the toilet without them coming in there with you. So he's like, what's that? What are you doing? What are you, you know? And I just am really open with him. I'm like, I'm doing this thing. So I guess as early as possible, as openly as possible, try and interrogate your own weird feelings about it so that you don't pass them on. But for people who don't have kids, I would say, you know, besides reading the book, I would say understanding what is happening inside your own body is your right. And if you don't know what is happening inside your body, that's not your mistake. That's not that you've been slack or remiss or you haven't been curious enough. There are really big and powerful forces afoot to discourage you from thinking about what's going on inside your body as women or, you know, as people with uteruses. So it's like it's actually part of our feminist struggle really to ensure that women and girls have an understanding of what's happening inside their body, have the strong sense of it being their own, have respect for it and respect for its 
all of its different needs. So as we get older from childhood into you know adolescence and adulthood, we start to learn your body as it cycles is going to have different needs too. And so I think tuning into body, listening to your body, we kind of lay it all out in the book really clearly. Knowing what's going on inside your body helps you make better decisions about it. And I don't mean like, I don't, I do not in any way mean like eat healthy and, you know, do yoga. Like I don't at all think that it can be reduced to this kind of like Instagram culture of wellness. I think it's like something so primal and deep. You know, we found all of this research that strongly correlates menstrual shame with a whole host of other massive social and psychological problems. So what happens when women and girls are ashamed of their period and ashamed of menstruating is that they come to view their bodies as wrong somehow and as letting them down or as dirty or as disgusting or unpredictable, unreliable, you know, mysterious in some way. Because if you can realize that, no, my body is really strong, carries me everywhere, it's where I live, I only have one, and people who have deep menstrual shame are more likely to have disordered eating and eating disorders, are more likely to engage in risky sexual decision making, are more likely to end up having trauma and childbirth. Like that all sounds so insane, but when you think about it, it's really obvious that if you don't know your body and you don't trust it, then you're not going to take care of it and respect it and put it first. So like I say, I have zero interest in like wellness culture. I'm a very strong advocate of health at every size. And I think that even just the phrase weight loss is just bullshit and redundant and, you know, patriarchal crap. But I do think that knowing what is happening inside your body as it cycles every month is very profound and powerful thing. Okay, so I have a question for you, Rosalind. What does wellness culture tell us to feel about our period? Let's start with this. I'm not entirely sure I know what wellness culture is because I think I do. But when you ask that question, now I'm confused. Is wellness culture yoga and juice cleanses? Like what is wellness culture? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly it. I think it's a culture of consumerism that is it's primarily directed at women because of diet culture. But I think it's a culture of bettering yourself, you know, like feeling more spiritually aware, being healthy, like meditating, doing yoga. You know, you mentioned doing a juice cleanse. I think that's all part of wellness culture. But it's just like this huge beast that's all encompassing. And like, you know, it's hard to I think some of the things we mentioned are really good for you and like really work well for people. But then others are just like listening to Karen talk about it, it kind of got me thinking about what is the place for periods in that equation. I mean, that's kind of an interesting question now that I know what it is. <laughs> yeah, because I think, you know, we're talking about taboos around menstruation, but I think that there's kind of a taboo on the taboo, if that makes sense. Like you're supposed to be in touch with your body and unashamed of it. And even if you don't talk about it all the time, you should understand it. You should be able to deal with it. You've had it a long time. Like you shouldn't be making mistakes around this anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's kind of an acceptance that you know how to manage this part of your life. And if you do get pain, you manage it and it doesn't impact you. When actually, of course it does. Yeah, I mean, that is interesting to note because I can think if we're talking about like consumerism and the things that are sold to us to deal with our periods, that for me has been kind of like a positive experience as of late because I've discovered period underwear, which is like completely transformed how I have my period. I feel like the you know, we were talking about earlier that I've been bleeding for 2.5 years and like only recently have I actually felt prepared. And I think a lot of people feel that with like menstrual cups. So that's another side of shame, actually. I used to feel so ashamed about the amount of waste I produced 
because, you know, when you think about sanitary towels and tampons, I mean, they're so bad for the environment. So, so, so bad. And so I, you know, I stepped into using them and didn't leave for a good long while and I discovered menstrual cups and I was so excited about the idea that I could reuse it in terms of sustainability and and the environment. It was just game changer. I was quite resistant to using anything other than pads. You know, when I first started hearing about period panties and all these other more sustainable ways to have my period, like I still am am hanging on to a lot of those ideas about how my period is like dirty and gross. And I was like, seemed only fit that I put in a pad every month that gets thrown away and like, I don't have to see it. That's interesting, isn't it? To think that it's tied up in the fact that you're producing waste. For a lot of my experience with my period, like I want to have as little contact with it as possible. Like I, I don't want my blood to get everywhere. I don't want to have to like clean up, you know, after myself when I'm on my period. Clean up in aisle three, Nicola's been here. <laughs> <laughs> my God. Um... <laughs> I think another whole part of wellness culture is the fact that like the way that the media talks about our periods too, like the fact that, you know, whenever you see advertisement for pads or tampons that has blood in it, like there's this huge controversy about it. And like, I think that something happened recently where one of them was like banned because of complaints. And it's like, it's fine to advertise those products to people, but it's not fine for them to be bleeding. It's one of those shameful things that like, I have hope that maybe it could change in our lifetime. I mean, it's interesting to try and think about with wellness though, because the more I think about it, the more I'm thinking wellness culture is very much like the job is never done. There's always a new fad. There's always a new way of going about it. There's always some way that you've always done it wrong. And how could you not have known that before? And so if we think about wellness culture in our period, it's sort of making the assumption that there is so much to learn and we're never going to get it right. There's always going to be things that come up and and maybe it's more important to think you've got a handle on it now. You may learn about it later. You may discover, you know, the sides of shame that you have and work through that. But you're all right where you're at. You know, let's talk about being okay where we are. Uh, I think that's probably against wellness culture but like in a good way i'm at a level of okay (laughs) i don't know if we're allowed to be at a level of okay with wellness culture there's also you know like the fact that period poverty is still such a huge thing like this conversation and all our like thoughts that we're sharing are very western centric it's really sad that there's still so much stigma attached to to it and i also can see how detrimental it can be for so many women and girls all over the world sorry that took a depressing turn but I feel like it had to be it had to be said how amazing that we can sit here and like interrogate our shame around our periods and like I suppose I take for granted and I think I think that's why talking to Karen has been so transformative because it it focuses the impetus on you but it also connects you to like the larger impact of the stigma want to hear more from the bad behavior team follow us on twitter at bad behavior cast Did you do that unshaming process for yourself while you were writing the book? I was lucky because I didn't remember or feel at any time as though I had shame around my period, which is kind of miraculous. But I did definitely just completely shut off any interest in my period. Like I got it quite late. I got it when I was 14. The range that of normal is 10 to 15. So I was still tracking within completely normal range, but, you know, being a 13 year old or a 14 year old where everyone else has got their period, like I felt there was something wrong with me. But then when I finally did get my period, I was like, oh, you know, this sucks so bad. Like I wish I'd never got it. So I guess I had that all those just internalized things that everyone 
that so many people grow up with. But then I just pretty quickly, because I was 14, maybe by the time I was 15, I was on the pill. That was a necessity growing up in Queensland. You couldn't get an abortion. You still couldn't get an abortion in Queensland until last year, I think. From the age of 15 to like 35, I was on the pill. And so my period was just like thing that I had just dealt with and gotten rid of essentially and just sort of mechanized as a result of a decision I made when I was 15 years old that it was never revisited until I was 35. <laughs> and I think a lot of women, like so many women that I've spoken to, are like, whoa, yeah, me too, you know. The other thing that I found was that, so from the age of 15 to 35 when I was on the pill, I hadn't actually been getting a period. So I had a bleed, I had a withdrawal bleed every month when I took the sugar pills, but that's not a period. That's just a bleed as a result of coming off the hormones. So it wasn't until working on this book that I was like, oh, well, if I wasn't ovulating because the pills were suppressing my, suppressing my ovulation, then I didn't even menstruate for 20 years. But I didn't know that, you know what I mean? Like I didn't even really kind of, and that's the thing, I think people who get the injection or the implanon or any kind of hormonal contraceptive, it made me really think about how many of us take hormonal contraceptives without really knowing what we're doing. And many of us would still take them. We're missing a really crucial part of that decision, which is like informed choice. And so that was a real shock to me to figure out that. So it kind of made me realize that in a way I had been disappearing my menstrual cycle and that I thought that was just because it was just convenient and easier and you know, the responsible thing to do as a sexually active woman. But in reflection, it's like it was also pretty wild disconnect with your own body to have been engaging in for 20 years without even really knowing it. I really resonated with what you just said because I think that's a key distinction, isn't it? I didn't really feel like I had much shame about my period at all. And I was so excited to read about Bloody Time, but I also had no idea about anything that was in that book either. Like it was... Same, same until I wrote it. So like, don't feel bad. It's kind of insane that, you know, like we say in the book, it's like the process by which every single human being is on the planet like every person who has ever lived is here as a result of menstruation, but it's been framed as like this disgusting, vile, awful stuff that if anyone ever sees it on your dress, it's like social disaster. And if it appears while people are having sex, there can be like massive, you know, like psychic breaks and overreactions and whatever. And it's like, it is so little understood because it's been treated as this disgusting, awful stuff for so long. So, I mean, you asked me before if I went on my own journey. One of the things that we had was this advisory group, which the Women's Trust put together. And it was just like all of these very highly qualified experts in the fields that we were working, like women's health and mental education. And they would read our manuscripts as we were going along and give feedback and say like, you know, fix this or put more of this in or, and we could just sort of pick their brains every six months. So one of them, Catherine Cunningham, who has written the foreword to our book, she's incredible. She, in one of our discussions for the meeting, like, I just sensed a bit of like a block from you on that. And I said to her, um, but this is early in the process. I was basically like, Catherine, I just think I'm not like the celebrate my menstrual blood kind of person. Like I, you know, I use my menstrual cup and I think it's great. She very, like, she's so, so beautiful, like so unoffended. So she was like, mm, yeah, I can see that. Yep. Well, can you just do something for me? She was like, next time you're using your menstrual cup, just before you pour the fluid out, just want you to say thank you. Right. And I, when she said it, I was like, mm-hmm, yeah, I can do that. Like I, I wasn't like, I didn't have a reaction of like, oh, you know, what a load of garbage or like wanting to laugh in her face. But I just sort of went, okay, thinking, sure, just agree to anything that she says and just get out of this conversation, right? <laughs> but I started doing it and 
to start with, I, it felt stupid. And I, I, I kind of forced myself to do it thinking I'll just do this to, you know, because I told Catherine I would, you know, so I kind of treated it like a chore. And then it started to change. And I started to actually think, yeah, I do thank you. Like, thank you for bringing me my baby. And thank you for like keeping my body healthy. I felt really like self-conscious and dumb doing it, but it started to really mean something to me. So I was super interested to hear about the gratitude sort of process that Karen was talking about. Nicola was actually the one to do this interview and so I listened to it afterwards and I just thought that was so intriguing to think that you could go through this process and maybe think about your period in a different way. So I decided to do it. My last period I did go through and every time I use a menstrual cup as we said before and every time I had to empty it I went through this little process of trying to say thank you and be grateful to my body. And it was really interesting. At first, when I started, I had this idea that I was going to be, you know, I'd go through this journey and, and get in touch with myself and just come out feeling really happy and kind of grateful about it. And I'm not sure that I thought it would be transformative or anything. And what actually happened was really strange. I am not regular, my periods, so I've never sort of had a consistent rhythm. With periods, they've always just sort of come out of the blue after an intense period of emotion and just kind of been like this huge hassle that I deal with, get over, move on with my life until it next comes up. And through this process of sitting there and having to be grateful, and I say having to be because it did feel a bit like a chore at times, I was so mad. Like I genuinely got angry because I think success in my period is not thinking about my period. It's going in, dealing with it, getting back into my life, just not thinking about it. And so at the end, I kind of thought it's not so much that I was trying to combat shame with this gratitude process. It was more that I was trying to connect the idea of periods to my own body because as someone who isn't regular and doesn't have it all the time sometimes I didn't really sort of connect to that idea of I don't know I have friends who've talked about this sort of getting in touch with the rhythms of your body and you know moon cycles and things like that and I never have so it was kind of strange that there was a little bit of a disconnect between my body and my own period I felt like it was a really great process I never want to do it again. <laughs> I was left with a feeling of I'm really grateful that this exists and that the process is there, but I'm really annoyed that it has to happen to me. When you were talking about how it was for you to do that and to go through like this gratitude ritual, I think it reminds me that a lot of us menstruate on autopilot you know we just like have our period try to get it over as soon as possible don't really think about what's happening or like how incredible our body is for you know having this like monthly or in your case you know whenever it turns up check in but I do think that you know every person that um, has a period has a different relationship with it and maybe the fact that yours is so irregular and like you don't have any warning about it that's maybe where like the anger sits you know for me I I'm very regular it's like clockwork you know like maybe in that way gratitude would be have more of a space in like my cycle than it would in yours. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. I just thought it was really interesting like that I really did think, <laughs> I really did think I would have a completely different experience than I did. And I do encourage people to do it because it kind of raised a lot of things for me that I hadn't thought about. Just the fact that I had a weird disconnect between my body and the idea of periods is already kind of odd. <laughs> But yeah, no, you're right. Maybe that is why. I did end up being grateful for the process in the sense that I think I thought about, you know, the biological side of it more. And I've started to link periods with something 
bigger than just an irritation that turns up every now and again, which is interesting because in sex ed, it's sort of the only side of menstruation that you talk about is the biological side. And yet, strangely, that's what I forgot (laughs) that it serves because I'm not looking to have children in the next, you know, foreseeable future. So it kind of feels like a chore. And it was interesting to sort of question that idea. It's not a one size fits all type of thing. As with with all of the stuff we've spoken about, you know, going through the process of researching this episode, it's certainly made clear to me that like I do need to pay attention more to to my period as something that's like happening with me instead of to me if that makes sense because I mean I feel the same way as you like it I have a lot of symptoms that pop up that I have not taken the time to connect them to what's happening inside my body and in the last year or so I've realized that like the week before my period my self-confidence goes down so low my self-talk gets really nasty when I'm in that really nasty period before my period, (laughs) I can be like, oh, come on, Nicola. We know that that's not true, that you were about to, to have your period. Let's just not be as dramatic. you spoke a little bit about how this shame and this taboo has been around for a really, really long time. And this book is, you know, part of the revolution to to try and shift things finally, long overdue. Um, in your ideal world, what would menstruation look like? How would we, how would women have their periods in a positive way? Well, we have that kind of imagine part in the book where we're like, you know, essentially menstruation is understood by everyone as just this normal, natural part of life and actually like the beginning of all life. And so women, girls, anyone who menstruates would not feel ashamed of it, would, but but also would not view it necessarily as the other functions of their body. They would kind of elevate it and they would see it as something that is a barometer of their overall health, that understanding your menstrual cycle helps you understand your moods and your energy levels and your psychological patterns as well. But I guess on a kind of structural and political level, in my ideal world, we have menstrual education in schools. That education is for all students and it starts in primary school with kind of age-appropriate stuff from age five onwards. It is a separate curriculum from science, PE, biology. It falls maybe more under like social studies. It is, it's mandatory, it's federally funded, it has a national curriculum that's developed by menstrual educators and is apolitical, secular. It also fits in with mandatory national curriculum of sex education that has come in at the same time. I think that we should have menstrual products in public bathrooms. I think that there's no good argument for why we don't. The supplies that every woman and girl and person who menstruates needs to handle their menstruation should be freely available and as and as compulsorily included everywhere as toilet paper. Doctors and other medical professionals learn about menstruation as part of their studies, which currently is not the case. So, for instance, a GP who, when we asked women to estimate how often their visits to the GP had something to do with their cycle, it was quite high. So, The fact that GPs don't have any specialist training in menstruation or the female reproductive system is pretty concerning. So, yeah, we would have, as part of that developing of a new language and a new culture, you would have modules in tertiary study for health professionals. 
And the other thing that our ideal future would have is a mature and progressive attitude towards women at work and how menstruation and menopause affects that. So if every woman and girl and anyone else who menstruates is navigating their work life, their professional life at the same time as managing their menstrual cycle, they're obviously going to be interdependent in a way. And so we talk about in the book, the development of menstrual policies for workplaces as absolutely essential to dismantling the menstrual taboo. If you think about how much of your life you spend at work, it's pretty crazy that that is still, once the, you leave the schoolyard far behind, it's still this really stressful place to manage your period, whether that's managing it in terms of having your period at work or also just your productivity, your energy levels, your your workflow and timelines for meeting different deadlines or whatever is obviously going to be affected by this thing that is happening to you every month. So, you know, our argument is that workplaces have policies for everything from social media use to workplace attire to every kind of imaginable aspect of your working life. Why not have a menstrual policy? in what the new positive menstrual culture of the future needs to look like. I think if you had all of that, you know, we would have a a revolution. We would have a very swift, just like the example of sunscreen, just like drink driving, just like all of the other things that have been very quickly and effectively changed within a generation, we would have a new culture that doesn't stigmatize and shame women and girls for menstruating. Thank you so much to Karen for taking the time to speak to us. It was so wonderful to have you as a guest and thank you for listening to another episode of Bad Behaviour. We all misbehave sometimes Wanna change the world Indulge in some bad